You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Charles Brandon Snyder offers securities through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Pursuing Alpha is a separate entity from LPL Financial. Pursuing Alpha and the logo are registered trademarks. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Any guests and their companies are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Alpha Capital Strategies, Alpha Capital, or the Pursuing Alpha Podcast. Rodney, man, it's good to have you. I appreciate you coming. It's been like a year and a half in this been making, but uh, you're actually the first guest we have. So Rodney Mogan, that's good to have you here. Well, I'm honored, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. Man, it's there's so much I want to talk to you. And just in our last like hour that we've sat here out of the conference room and just hanging out, there's like I learned so much more about you than I ever thought. And it, it's like there's so much I want to cover here. So first of all, who you are, right? So you have two PhDs, one in... One in business administration and one in financial planning. Yeah, I knew the financial planning with the business administration. And you're almost about to get your third PhD. In economics. That is crazy. Do you like to read? <laughs> I mean, well, it, that is nuts. It's actually a funny story. I am dyslexic. and we'll, So am I. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this. I'm also autistic and things like that. So school is not my favorite thing to do. But over time... You know, second I graduated college, I wanted nothing to do with school, nothing to do with designations. But as I did other different things and got promoted or opened up my business and got into different business avenues, people were turn were passing me over because I didn't have a certain degree behind my name or things like that. Sure. And I didn't understand. I didn't agree with it, especially since I was, you know, lapping a lot of the people, uh, you know, without without the degree. So I got the degree just so people would actually listen to me. That's And not only do you have those degrees, but you also have like 41 designations. designations. And I'm talking like CHFC, CLU. I mean, these are some of the biggest designations. CFP. I don't have a CFP because I, I want the doctorate route. On. Uh, yeah, that's right. Right. Uh, but I do have. <laughs> oh, I'm a doctorate in, yeah. <laughs> in financial planning. Why do I need a certified financial planner? But I do have a CFA. So I am a certified financial analyst. Yeah, that's the hardest degree, I think. Correct. It's like uh, nobody understands this. So I always explain it because we have a CFA on our staff, Marco. Yeah. Right. And so I always explain a CFA is like taking the law. Uh, test on three different subjects, three different years in a row. And if you fail one of those, you're starting all over again, pretty Correct. much for that year. I mean, yep. it's, it is, uh, you have to be wicked smart to, uh, and it just really dedicated. I think it's a lot of it's the de dedication just to spend that much time learning about the markets. There it is. And it's also just about understanding the derivatives, the different things that the variables and stuff like that, and understanding how it works with the test world. And then also just in real world and where I got, I actually failed the first test twice. And I, so I don't like to think I'm the smartest person, but I, I, I persevere on it. And the problem was, is I kept confusing real world to with test world. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I, so I think that's the, the biggest thing is, you know, I've now understand academic world, test world and real world. And what I like to always say is I kind of merge all three together and can explain it to all, everyone. And, you know, I like to say that I like to make the complex simple. Sure. 
I think they're really uh, been around a lot of guys, but I, I found out that the the most gifted guys in our industry or the most successful guys also do that same thing is if you can make the complex simple um, and you could talk on the levels of the person you're talking to is really where that you know because sometimes you you're talking to somebody that's very sophisticated and understands it and they want to have a deeper conversation about the analytics of derivatives or whatever you're having their conversation about but i think that's that the intelligence is that in my mind it's like if you can read people and also understand where they're sharing information that disconnect of that is always the most interesting part to me um i, I like it i like the teaching side of it yeah. I, I think financial planning at its core is just you're a teacher you're an educator yes. and and that's one of the things that i love kind of working with clients and doing on but not only this so we're going to get to a whole lot of stuff but i got to bring this up because i just found out about this you are literally the largest or one of the largest landowners in the United States. You own 1.5 million acres of farmland. Yes. That is crazy. And a lot of this inherited through families going back to the 1900s? Uh, actually, uh, 1800s, 18, 1880s. 1880s. And yeah. it's that's nuts. I don't want to tell anybody where it's at because I just, no. right. And, and so it's all held right and trust and all that other stuff. But my point is 1.5 million acres is i mean i thought it when i heard that and i don't even know if this fact ron looked this fact up for me but isn't it bill gates now uh <laughs> didn't he have like two hundred eighty thousand acres he does right isn't it something like 280 288 000, something i mean like he's a chump compared to you which yeah. I, i'm not a huge fan of bill gates but, <laughs> but uh, 242 thousand acres 242 000. so you're what four times five times yeah. something like that and so how do you manage that so, and I know we're going to probably talk about this too, but like I keep saying, I'm autistic. So a lot of what I do is very structured. Right. And I have a very structured day. If I were to show you my calendar, knowing you, you probably would have a heart attack because of how full it is, but also just the different uh, block times, things like that. So when I, when I found out about the land, I actually, it's something I didn't even know. It, um, it came in a generation skipping trust to avoid... My parents and uh, my aunts and uncles, and it went to me when my grandfather died. And I remember holding his hand, and he's like, "I've got a good surprise for you. I've taught you well. You'll do fine." Had no clue what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, and then all of a sudden, about six months after his death, I get notified that I'm part of this trust, and I didn't do any do anything with it for a good ten years because I was 21 when he died. So not until I was 31, and then uh, for the last 15 years. I really, I created a business plan because that's what I do and I have a structure. And then I, there were some people on the land that were renting it. Instead of letting them rent the land, I said, I'm going to pay you a salary and you're going to work the land. I'm going to give you a profit sharing, but you're not going to own it. Right. And so I immediately switched their economic situations. And then I hired um, a general, two general managers that have farming degrees from, one's actually from A&M and another one from uh, the University of Minnesota. And they actually live, all of them live on the land all the time. And then those two general managers go around and they make sure that we're checking different things. And, you know, just like you have a CFA on your team, I have a soil scientist. I have a meteorologist. I have a lot of different people on my team so that we can actually figure out when to plant, what to plant, 
when to yield, all those different things, and really have some re- really detailed stuff. So I, I'm in a meeting every morning uh, from 9 to 10 Central Time, where that is what we talk about. Uh, so so what's the main crops in, in where, you, where you're at? I mean, because uh, we're in Lubbock, so if you don't know, Lubbock, Texas, right? right? So it's like it's cotton, sorghum, a little bit of grains, right? But it's it's mainly cotton. Everybody knows here we're yeah. one of the biggest 13 counties around Lubbock's generates a large mass amount of the cotton in the world but there i wouldn't think it's no it's it's wheat hay corn radishes sweet potato um, sweet potatoes and uh beets really yeah and lettuce and lettuce so you are getting into some of the perishables like the consumables that's and is this food corn or is this so we do both you do both. Um, we do, you know, and soybeans are also a big thing, but soybeans take a lot out of the, out of the soil. Yeah. So I've chosen not to do soybeans, but uh, we do food corn and we do, um, you know, grain or what they call feed corn or grain corn. Yeah. Um, so we have our own silos. We have our own processing plants. So I, I've actually really, like I said, I took that business plan and I really, really developed exactly what we're going to do. One thing I'm proud of. And I know some people in Texas might get mad at me for this, but I we are 100% sustainable. So we are on our own water grid. We are on our own power grid. Um, we have wind turbines, solar. Um, we have, I mean, not every tractor and not every farm equipment is electric because they just don't make them. But, yeah, right. You know, but so we're... You're as close as you can get to. We are as close as we can get to. We also have some hydroponics so that we can grow radishes and other stuff that we can't normally grow in the on the soil. We have it in a, we have it in warehouses that are kind of greenhouses or six stories high, um, and it's all hydroponic. Uh, very little, um, very little soil or fertilizer is needed, which really I think is where we're going to be going because especially with what's going on with the fertilizer market. I know a lot of farmers, a lot of ranchers are hurting. So explain that. What's going on in the fertilizer okay. market? So it started back in February of last year when Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, over 96% of all the raw materials and also the finished product for fertilizer comes from Russia and Ukraine. I did not know that. And so when they when Russia invaded Ukraine and shut down the ports, Fertilizer went up almost 1,500, 1,000 to 1,500%, depending on where. Now, a lot of farmers were lucky last year because they had already... Yeah, they already planted and they already passed the fertilizing stage. Well, they hadn't planted, but they had already bought the fertilizer contracts. Okay. Um, But now, this year, fertilizer markets are up. We don't have the same plants that they do over there. We don't have the same raw materials to actually make the fertilizer. So fertilizer itself has gone up about... 800% 800% from February of last year. And so some farmers, depending on the size, may have had a contract for about $1.5, $2 million. I know that sounds a lot, but $1.5, $2 million per fertilizer to fertilize their farms. Now that same $1.5, $2 million is probably about 5 to $6 million. That's crazy. So if you think about how that's going to affect food supply. Oh, yeah. You know, it's... It's going to be crazy. And, and this is where... This is a great point to make right here. This is where I think... The crop inputs right now to produce any crop today is just astronomical. I was talking to a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Miller. He he he. We were talking about. I don't know how the next generation is gonna 
grow food. Uh, it, it is something that is as and I, I'm just a planner with, you know, here in West Texas that I deal with, you know, a couple of dozen farmers. Right now we're in West Texas. So, you know, it's more of a way of life. It's a way of life. But they're pretty good sized farms here. Right. right. It's not like you're in the Iowa states and it's three, four hundred acres. You, you, you know, it's five, 10, 20, 30,000 acres is what some of these farmers are, are running. Everybody thinks that's crazy if you're hearing that from a national, but it's really not right. It's it's very flat land out here and, and they've been doing it for 100 years. Right. Correct. And so it, it's nothing abnormal here. But when you get further north and that's when you told me kind of where you're at, I was like that. That's insane. So of that acreage. I got to ask this. How much is continuous? I'd say about 65% of it. Really? Yeah. That is crazy. You got minerals on that too? I do. That is nuts all the way around. We're, we're going to have this. You're going to have to come back for another podcast because a good buddy of ours is also on the mineral side that's coming on. And he's talking specifically on the different types because nobody understands how minerals work. Right. It, it is absolutely. I mean, he has to tell me three different ways on what net mineral acre is compared to a royalty acre compared. To, I mean, it gets crazy. Oh, how It's very confusing. It is very confusing on there. But a great deal. Come back from that. So you so you're doing all of it. Right. So you got the royalties right you got the surface and so now you're doing solar i mean there's nothing you're not doing on this thing so how many people are employed on that 433 right now that is crazy so you got 433 people yeah and and i mean you know it's we're looking at do we add more do we do we contract a little bit get a little bit more responsibility because again like i was just talking about the commodity prices the crop inputs are too expensive how are you going to make a profit at all correct so because we actually were so sustainable last year, diesel wasn't as much of an issue. Now you still have to power tractors. Yeah. Some of the tractors are hybrid. We've got them some, but they still use diesel. Um, now we actually do our own shipping. Uh, last year we bought 10 uh, electric semis to do our own shipping, uh, mostly for, we, we sell acidophilus milk. So basically it's the raw milk. You just mm -hmm. put it in a bottle and send it, but you can only send it for four to six hours. So our trucks are all electric. If they were diesel, we would not have made a profit on it. So it's just, it's, I, I'm with you about your friend of how are the next generation going to farm? Because it's become a really big, big, big business. And luckily, I've been able to counter the big agricultural businesses. But, you know, there's also other, other situations like with Monsanto, where they really put out all that um, GM, GDM food out there and seed and GMO food and seed, and they then try to sue a lot of farms saying that- The technology, right? The technology patents are inside of it. Now, th it, it there's two sides of that, and I, I don't want to go- No, I know. Right, so let's, let's explain what that is, right? So the two sides, one, one side of that is, well, you wouldn't have yields near what the yields are today. I mean, I look back when I was in high school, you know, farmers on-, on Correct. Right. We're getting they were happy if they're getting one, one and a half bales. Now you're getting three, three and a half Correct. bales. Right. For cotton. So, I mean, that and you expect that in today's. So they're, they're, the patents and technology that's went into the seed. Right. Way less water now usage, which is huge here in West Texas, that I understand. I have no business, you know, explaining this, but right. So I get to see the surface level, right, as talking to uh, these ag producers. But then there's the flip side of that. You know, you, you, you got a round baler now that costs, what, $780,000. 
So, I mean, it, and I talked to, I got three right now that I'm talking with and they're in their tw- 20s and 30s. Um, and they're literally going, hey, Brandon, like, how am I eventually ever going to learn uh, own land? And I'm going, well, I mean, by the time you make your equipment payment, mm-hmm. you make your input cost payments, right? And you're living, that's really, really hard. So all these old ad guys that are passing stuff off, the next generation doesn't want to farm. There, that's a big thing, right? So there's a lot of complexity going into it, but th- there's two sides of that coin exactly. saying, how's that going to work going forward? I don't I don't have an answer. I'd love to, well, I mean, managing the size of a farm you have, how did you, I mean, I, granted, you're incredibly gifted, and we'll talk about, I mean, you're gifted in two different ways too, but it's also kind of, you know, autistic is, right? right? But that also gives you laser focus, I would think, to be able to do some of the things you're doing. It's crazy. But how are you being able to even estimate what your operations are going to do to make sure you're not taking risk? Are you marketing your crops too? Are you hedging them? Yes. So that is one of the things that my, uh, my grandfather taught me. And, you know, being autistic, one of the things is I was limited verbal Really, I really said very little words until I was about 16. And the only person I really ever talked to was my grandfather. And so from the time I was six, every summer I would go and I'd spend two months on his farm in, in his state. And basically, he would teach me everything. And one of the things he taught me every morning, and I still do this to this day, is I grab the Wall Street Journal Monday through Friday. I pull up the commodity section. I look at the, those pricings. And that's how I actually plan what we're going to what we're going to plant um i look at the market i know what i i can already kind of he showed me that i can kind of see what the trends are what the different things are a lot of farmers and this is controversial but a lot of farmers will look at the farm bill that gets passed in late december every single year Mm -hmm. and they'll make their planting decisions based on the subsidies Mm. i would agree with that i have not taken a, a federal subsidy on the farms at all i don't do that so I do take a lot more risk. Um, but by watching the markets and knowing the markets, and it's something I do every morning at 5 a.m. I, I study them every single morning, and then I read the Wall Street Journal as well, like I said. And we, we, make, uh, we make decisions. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it, too. It's, yeah, so what's that decision process? So give me an example there. Yeah. So, so I'll give you a great example with wheat. Okay. All right, so wheat is – it's not necessarily – takes a lot of nutrients out of the soil, but it takes a, but it needs a lot of nutrients in the soil to grow. And you've got, you got to figure out when you're going to plant it, and then it's got a long planting cycle or, you know, growing cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in February last year, again, when the Russia-Ukraine situation happened, because of fertilizer, because they also have a lot of wheat that comes out of that area, wheat contracts spiked. I won't say what the price was, but they went up almost 700%. I locked into a contract. Oh, my goodness. At 700% the normal rate at that time. Now, when you lock into that contract, you actually have to put a down payment down. You have to, you have to buy the option, basically. Right. And, and you're also committed to you, producing it. That's what I was going to say. You're committed to producing it, and you got to produce it by a certain date. Right. So you got to count on weather. You got to you know you got to count on a lot. Yeah, you of can't hedge a hundred percent. Like no. you're crazy if you do, right? But right. even sixty to seventy percent is even extreme from what I've seen. Correct. So I I lucked out, got that contract. We lucked out with weather conditions for the most part, and we were able to deliver the contract. 
that was able to pay for everything else once we did that. But this year, uh, and with wheat, after I locked in that contract a month later, it dropped below what it was trading before that spike. Be, before the spike. Yeah. So if you're not paying attention, now you're locked into a much lower market rate. Now I, I will tell you the people I locked into the contract tried to renegotiate with me multiple times. No, I wasn't going to do that. No. <laughs> so, but um, and they kept raising my call price and and my call time. Luckily, I had it all planned. But those are all the different things you have to figure out. And you have to figure out can we plant? You know, um, there is snow on the ground where I where we have the farms, and if it if you get a late snow, that's going to screw up your planning. So yeah, there's a lot of risks you have to kind of think about. So we do hedge it, but um, the, you can't hedge 100%. Before. No, you can't. Do you, are you, what's water like where you're at? Is it like West Texas? Like water is the biggest commodity we have. Like, do y'all have water? Like, yeah, like, there, there's water, but. Um, what's your average rain? Like here in West Texas, I think it's like 18 inches is what um, all we're getting. Are you getting that 25, 30, 40? No, it's, it. It's about, yeah, it's probably about 30, 35 inches of rain, but they, they do get snow. Uh, now, this year, they're getting a lot of snow, but the last three years, they didn't get a lot of snow. Sure. And what you want is you actually want about anywhere from about three to six feet of snow, because believe it or not, and this is something I learned a uh, couple years ago, is snow when it melts, actually has some nitrogen. Has I was fixing to say, it's all the nitrogen that goes into the soil right it there. It goes into the soil. <laughs> yeah. But you don't want too much. If you've got 8 feet, 10 feet, you're over nitrogen. You get yeah. way too much nitrogen. So the ideal thing is about 3 to 6 feet of, of snow. Um, and especially if you have some warm, um, warm days throughout the winter where it will melt it a little bit, but not too much. Uh, you know, so right now we're, we're at that 6-foot uh, level right now so that's cool that's good so you're, you're you're ideal there and that's well you get the nitrogen from, from there but you get i mean you're not as irrigated y'all y'all don't have to worry about you know pivots and doing uh, row crop is it row crop farming or y'all more modern now where it's all flat and uh it's still rope some of it's real cut some of it's modern uh i'm trying to get to more modern because it actually uses less irrigation yeah it does it totally does right and so in drip yes. a lot of drip yeah, yeah so y'all are okay and that's used to be such a anomaly now it's kind of the standard going here yeah so i mean what we're, what we're doing is we're actually collecting the snow and we're putting it into water tanks um like i said we're trying to be how are you doing that um what are you do. plowing snow up and then litter? Not on the open fields, but on all our all our dead areas, we actually do collect it. And what I do is, um, you know, if you've ever lived in snowy areas, when you have a lot of snow, the plow companies have to push it somewhere, push it somewhere, and they have to haul it off somewhere. So I actually buy that snow and I have them put it in, put it into the tanks. Huh. <laughs> You've thought of everything. I don't know about everything, but I I, I try to think of things. So because did you say this is the first year you're profitable with it? This was the first. No, this this year coming in 2023, we're expecting to actually show our first profit because we were doing so much reinvestment. Oh, okay. So a lot of R and D. A lot of R and D. I mean, we were profitable. It was just we were just constantly putting it back. Back in, yeah, and growing the operations. Correct. Yeah, that's good. All right. So you brought this up a couple of times to get off that. I just think that's so interesting, right? (laughs) Especially because a little West Texas boy out here that gets to see these farmers, and then you you tell that story, and it's like jaw dropping. I just think it's amazing. But you brought this up a couple of times, right? Yeah. So you're autistic, like. 
I did not know that. I mean, we've worked together for over a year now. I mean, we've known each other for almost 10, right? right? And so we've worked together for a little, pretty consistently for a little over a year now. So it, it's, I didn't know you're autistic. And so I, I have a thousand questions to this, right? And I'm going to try to put them, frame them, where the, uh, hopefully none of them's offensive, right? You can't offend me. Okay, good. Because I'm not, I'm not trying is what I'm saying, but the... Uh, I got to understand the scale. Yes. That's the biggest thing that is a gap in my mind, just being ignorant. Okay. And, and uh, how did, what does that mean? Cause I know uh, you've heard Asperger's right. Mm -hmm. And then autistic, isn't that a version of it? It's just a milder version or I don't want to say mild. It's not the right word. It's just a different. So uh, actually in the community, Asperger's is no longer recognized. Really? Yeah. It was actually something that was done to label, some autistic people would call them somewhat normal. Oh, they're Oshbergers. Yeah. And so they're not truly autistic, but they're not truly normal or... Um, See, I already stuck my foot in my mouth on the first no, question. No, 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 no you did it. No, no one really knows this. And and, I, I, would, I never would have done that. Yeah. And so, but basically what they now refer to it is spectrum, autistic spectrum disorder, ASD. Okay. okay? And... Um, Trust me, I call myself Ashburgery all the time, or Ashburgers, uh, basically all, all the time. But the um, some people will actually take effect, uh, offense to that, and you you do have a pretty wide spectrum. You've got people that, you know, and, and the funny thing is, and I, I call it funny, is when I say I'm autistic, people go, "No, you're not," and I'm like, "Actually, I am." But this, what you see now, and what you've dealt with me, is twenty years of therapy. Sure. Um, of trying to figure things out, but you put me in certain settings, you know, put me at a barn dance or put me, um, you know, just, you know, if I went to your house and you had 50 friends, I would not be the same person that you're used to being with. Right. Cause I would be off in the corner. I'd have a drink in my hand and I would not talk. Um, social settings scared the, you know, what out of me, but what you and I have known each other for on a business relationship and it's stuff that I know really, really well. So I actually have to write out a script pretty much on everything I do every single day. Uh, I do a little thing that, uh, hopefully I can say this, I do a little thing on LinkedIn called Tuesday Tactics, and I do mm -hmm. a video. I've watched them. And um, I have one that's posting right now that says uh, about adaptability. And I actually talk about mental adaptability. And for me, I have to actually adapt a lot. But when I adapt, I have to take a break. Like, I mean, literally, close close the door for a second and rewrite a new script of how I'm going to deal with that. So if someone's talking to me negatively or something comes up in my life, you know, you call and yell at me about something. Or oh, whatever. I've blown you up once or twice, <laughs> exactly. man. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to. I no, no, no. It, it, it's who you are and, and that's okay. But if you notice, I sometimes just say, Hey, let me give you a call right back or whatever. I have to literally just, reframe my mind to figure out exactly what it is, write the script, and then I can call back or I can deal with it. I can't do it as quickly as some other people can. I was limited verbal until I was about 16. Um, not because I couldn't talk, but really what, I, what I've uh, learned through therapy is because I didn't, I didn't really want to interact with a lot of people I was interacting. Uh, one of my best stories that I, that I share, and I think this will give you an idea to your question, is my mom's a teacher. Uh, she's now retired, but she was a teacher. And I was at this, uh, went to this really prestigious private school in Los Angeles because um, I got to go for free because of my mom. And 
they made you take these really stupid standardized tests every year from the time you were in first grade until I think I was eighth grade or whatever. I think they still do that today. And, and it was these things called ERBs. And when I started taking them, I looked at the questions. I'm like, these are stupid. And I started drawing pictures on the on the Scantron. So people today probably don't know what a Scantron is, but it's actually a sheet of bubbles that you actually just right, right. <laughs> fill out. Um, but the top score was a 10. I consistently got ones and twos. Now, for a prestigious school, they don't want a bunch of ones and twos. They all, they want nines and tens. You know, yeah, they want to students. make sure everybody graduates top of the class and exactly. everything like that. So, that, yeah, and it keeps it prestigious. So I, I get called into my mom's boss, the assistant principal. My dad's there. My mom's there. And he's saying, okay, this is the third year in a row he's gotten ones and twos. He's obviously not understanding the material. He's just not this school's you know, type of person. We also know he has social issues. He doesn't talk to people. Probably he should go into an institution. That might be his best path. And I remember my mom and my dad just having an argument in front of her boss, and she's crying because she's a teacher and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, what's best for her son. And right. Yeah. And I said, excuse me. Now, keep in mind, other than my parents, no one has heard me talk, and including my teacher and, and the assistant principal was there. And they're like, what? And they're like, Rodney? I'm like, mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to say? And I'm like, what are my grades? Well, you have straight A's. <laughs> so let me get this straight. You're saying that the test determines my intelligence, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, it determines how well you're going to do in this world. Okay, so and you're saying that because this is such a stringent school. Now, come on, I'm eight at the time. And I'm so I'm saying things that are you know, adult level conversations. But yeah, you're you're having an adult conversation right. at eight. And he, he's shocked that I'm even talking. And uh, he uh, he's like, yeah, you know, we have standards. And I'm like, okay, so then you need to fire your teachers. Why? Well, because you just said I have straight A's, but you said this test is telling me that I'm intel- I'm not intelligent. That's why to flip the script. Yeah, right. So why would I have straight A's if the test is saying I'm an idiot? Right. Right. I mean, that's a way to flip the script right there. Yeah. That's that's pretty ingenious. At eight years old, that's really ingenious. Exactly. And so he looked at me and he said, "Okay, you can go back to class." <laughs> The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. How did you find out you're autistic? So it's kind of a funny story. So I, I struggled all through high school, junior high. I had really hard times with certain classes. Um, and I actually thought I was stupid, you know, and... Um, I believe the hype, but when I got to college, I had I was in the student union and saw this thing of uh, a study that one of my psychology professors was doing around ADD, and I went in to apply. Um, I'm thinking I'm going to be in the control group. I just thought I was stupid, and so he did a whole series of testing of everyone for for this study. He was going to follow them all through four years of college, and he calls me into his office. You know he. He's my professor in this psychology 101 freshman year. Calls me into his office after class, and I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do? I'm thinking it's a paper or something like that. He's like, I got your results back. I was like, oh, okay, so when do I start? He's like, we got some work to do before you start. Oh, wow. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, I think you thought you might be in the control group. I'm like, yeah. Well, you're going to be my study group. And I'm like, because I'm thinking study group, uh, that's you mean, so you're studying me? He's like, yeah, 
you have three things that are not usually common. You're dyslexic, you're ADD, and you're autistic. And how you are actually sitting here talking to me because of where you scored on the, on the spectrum scale, it's usually people that are completely nonverbal, are completely all, they're not functioning in society. So is, is that a scale? Yes. I, is that scale like one to 10? Is that like, or, or do they do it like that? Is that? No, a, I, it's, it's kind of just, it's kind of like, like a bell curve. Okay. Like a nonverbal to verbal and verbal. Then each one of them is different. We're correct. So are, do you gravitate towards one thing? Yes. With finance, apparently. Uh, we're really, it's, um, it's economics and politics. Really? Yes. So you want to get in a p- political conversation with me? Oh, well, we can. I, I'd, I'd love that. <laughs> uh, probably not my the viewers, but <laughs> you and I can do it privately. I, I'm more than happy to do that. But or I can so, do it here too. Yeah. So did you study a lot on the politics side? Yes. That that that's so that's the two things because I know everybody that's I've ever heard of gravitate towards something that they and then they just become ridiculous informed on it that's yes. they study everything they can about it yes i i can tell you everything from uh, in economics and politics i can tell you all the minuscule stuff i you know my wife always has to remind me when you know like uh, i'll use a great example when the house speaker this year was being elected that was just nuts that was nuts but i'm like why do they have to explain how this works this is this is like seventh grade civics class she's like a, no one paid attention. Two, no one remembers it. Yeah. Three, this isn't something people care about. And I'm going, why? <laughs> yeah. So I have to constantly remind myself that people don't understand what economics really is. No. And they don't understand politics. I still don't think I understand politics, to be honest with you. I think it's just turned into, maybe it's always been this way, just the biggest popularity contest where it's irrelevant on somebody's credentials to being qualified to do the job. I actually think it actually has evolved into that versus it being how it actually was. The problem is, is if you really look at, and this is just a quick history lesson, if you really look at our political system, you have to look at the UK because that's where our political system started from. So if you really look at it, our House of Representatives is their House of Commons. Right. Our Senate is the House of Lords. So if you think about what the House of Lords is, those are the rich, high estate. They're the owners. The House of Commons are supposed to represent, represent the common people. Which is the House of Representatives. Which is the House of Representatives. Yep. The problem is, is now, in order to run just a normal House race, and this has just blown up in the last 10 years, it's anywhere from 10 to $15 million just to run for a two-year term. Hmm. It's almost $30 million for a Senate race. So it's no longer really the commons anymore. Now, the UK, they can still run a, a campaign because they have certain caps on what you can spend in spending. That's where I was literally going to that. So from an economic standpoint and then also from a political standpoint, we have to get money out of politics. Correct. I, I don't care if you're liberal no. or Republican. I mean, that's that— if you run on that right there and you run on term limits, I think those are the only two things that are relevant. They're never going to pass it. No. I mean, I think Ted Cruz just tried to put something out there, and I think it's all pandered. I, I, you put it—it's funny. The party that's never going to get the bill passed, 
puts the thing that always everybody wants because they know they're not going to pass it. Right. And they think, and maybe Americans are stupid enough to believe that, hey, I mean, you put the bill forward. But, I mean, it's never going to get through the Senate because they're not the majority. And it's never going to get through the White House, right? Because that guy can't even <laughs> speak a coherent sentence anymore. And Correct. Right? So, I... I, I from an economic standpoint, that we got to get the money out of it. You, you've got to put a cap. You've got to put a cap on it. You know what that cap is? We can have a debate all day on that. But you got to put a cap on races. Not only that, I look at it from how do you have media? Would you? I think everybody can agree to some level that there is media bias inside of politics today. Yes, on right? both sides. On both sides, right? But but, and if there's media bias, and that's obvious, right? And then you're giving money to that media organization from that party. There's you talk about a conflict of interest that we have in finance. There's so many conflicts of interest in the political spectrum. It's insane to me to even comprehend how all it is is a money grab. Who's a popularity contest and how much I, you know, stick your hand out. Let's get paid. And with media, it's actually a federal law violation for federal offices. If you actually look at the rule, the way the rules are, they just don't enforce it. They don't enforce it. But uh, I, I actually, I actually like President Obama from uh, an oratory perspective. I don't disagree. I don't agree with his policies per se. But using him as an example, he was on Oprah seventeen different times while he was running for president. The, the first time, his opponent was never ever on Oprah. That is a true FEC violation because if you put them on media, you have to give your opponent the equal, equal time. time. Now, right. I'm using him as an example. Um, a counterexample would be Donald Trump in his first election in 2016. He, I, honestly, I think this is why the media turned against him is because of the fact that they made him president. Because if you look at his early, the early primary, he was doing horrible. But the Today Show... Good Morning America, all this mainstream television that we that we hear about kept putting him on almost every single morning to deal with something he said the night before. And then he was able to clarify his position. So he said a soundbite, mm-hmm. knew they would take it wrong. Mm-hmm. It, to me, he's a master marketer. He's a master. I don't think anybody could deny that. No. And so he turned it into all of a sudden he's killing it in the primary, wins the primary. They continue it. I think they finally realized how complicit they were. But it took them a very long time to do that. And but at the same time, they were violating FEC law because they gave him a 30 minute time slot on almost every show to answer his questions or answer questions of, on statements he said. And they never went back to the other candidates. So that, 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 that's the hard part, because if you think back to the 1800s, when you only had a paper, you didn't mm-hmm. have radio, you didn't mm-hmm. have TV, you definitely didn't have Twitter or Facebook or anything like that. So it was a lot easier to control it. And the messages that came out were a lot more controlled and I think a lot more unbiased. And so there's a lot that needs to be fixed to it, but you do have to have some caps. You do have to have some caps to, to media. I think social media is actually probably the most interesting thing because of the protections they get, yet they want to edit it. Yeah, and in that prop, 31 or something like that. I can't remember what they, they did that, where they're not a media company or they're not right. a publication or whatever it is. Section 130. Section 130. That is something like that, right? And so uh, my point 
and there's so many podcasts, I don't want to get too deep in this. Right. My point to the political sphere um, when it comes to social media or any platform is, right, you can't say that you're transparent and that you're allowing everybody to speak, then turn around and, and deplatform everybody and then turn around and promote all this stuff. I mean, it, it, here's – have you seen Chat GTP yet? Yes. Okay. Like, I mean, we've – I think it's going to be the next wave. I mean, we use it here just to brainstorm ideas internally to, to write something. I think Ryan probably uses it every day. We we take, hey, you know, here's 10 ideas about finance that we hadn't thought of today. You know what I'm saying? And it's just kind of that gap of where um, it can kind of get your creative juices running. I think that's it. But it's going to get better and better and better. And one of our initiatives is we're building our own financial um, software. Right. I mean, we're, we're building a – beast of a financial right. software is what I'm trying to build. And we already have allocated uh, AI into it, machine learning AI into it, because I think it's just, it's it's here, right? I think Google uh, just um, announced yesterday that they're coming out with a, their own version that they've been working with for a little bit already. So my point is, is go look at the bias inside of there. Go ask it about Donald Trump. Go ask it about uh Biden and and see the reactions off of this the platform. It, yeah. It's it's pretty shocking. I think they're already trying to create it, create it, or change it, or you know make it more unbiased. But here here's the point. You're I'm only going as good to, as who who builds it. So I know, right? If they built it that way, that it's it's going to be crazy. But where do you think we're going right now? So and I'll, I'll leave political. Yeah, no. Uh, um, I, I got a theory, and I wanted to see what yours are before yeah. I threw mine out. No. Well, first of all. I'm talking about the presidential race. That's yeah, no, I, I know where you're going. Uh, but for, first of all, I just want to say how uh, forward-thinking and amazing you are to me. Uh, I mean, we've known each other for a, while, for a while, like you said, and the vision I've seen from your practice from 10 years ago today is just amazing and how you keep you know, reinvigorating and reinventing, and a lot of people in our industry just don't do that. So, oh, I appreciate that. Um, but... I always feel like I'm going slow as a turtle, <laughs> right? Everybody around me is going, Brandon, you're nuts. Like, slow down. And I'm going, I feel like I'm fixing See, I to be, feel the same way. I feel like I'm fixing to be, like, blindsided where the whole thing's fixing to shift yep. on me, and I'm going to miss the boat. So, you know, I, I think innovation uh, for the weird people that we are have to be yeah. always innovating or we're dying. See, so. and I always feel stupid, and I always feel I'm slow. And, you know, so, yeah, it, it's our own self-talk. Sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of that adaptability. But as far as where we're going politically real, real quick, I know who I would like to see go, but no, I, think, I do too. Uh, I, I think we're going to go, you know, Trump like, I think we'll, you know, nominate DeSantis or someone like that. I'd rather see Nikki Haley, um, make it out of the primary. I just don't think she will. Um, but, uh, you know, I also think that we're going to become even more, more divided, and, you know, bring it back to financial for a second. I think we've got a huge fight um, with this uh, with, with the debt limit. And, you know, we've already maxed out our debt limit. We've moved money around to pay bills. But if we don't make certain changes and I I think that house um, that house election was actually very vital to our country's future. I'm just I just don't think that a lot of them are going to have the the metal to hold the line when we're about to default. I, I want to touch on both those points, but I'm going to do them in order. Yeah, go ahead. All right, so I, I Trump like DeSantis, I wouldn't mind. Nikki Haley, I wouldn't mind. The problem with all of this is if you look at it, 
And if if it was Trump, because Trump's, I mean, he's in it, right? So if it's Trump and it's DeSantis, who you think wins that? I think it's going to be DeSantis every yes. day, right? The problem is, is, and there's a lot of people talking about this, and it's really bugged me ever since I've heard it, is when you get Nikki Haley in there and you get, uh, what is that? The, Pence? No, oh. uh Pope, uh, the Secretary of State, Pompeo. When you get Pompeo in there, the, he's just going to pull. Both of them are going to pull enough off of DeSantis, correct, to get Trump nominated as the Republican, yes. and then it's going to be just an all-out war. Yes, right, and that's my biggest fear. And and I, I, I think the party, both parties, need to get away from the extremisms. I agree. That, whatever you fall on that spectrum, I don't care, right? But we can't go back to Trump, and we can't live where we're at right Correct. now. And, I mean, look who the—I mean, you know who the Democrats are putting up scares me to death. <laughs> I mean, that dude is just literally will—I mean, it's it's Canada. It's all he is. I mean, he's just another version of Canada putting— uh, I'm so bad with names. Trudeau. No, oh. well, Trudeau, but the guy out of California. The, Newsom. Newsom, thank you. So putting Newsom, I mean, this guy is the worst thing you could ever have in our country. I mean, he on so many different levels, and you can just pick a level. And that, I'm just saying from my personal view, that's where I, I fall. I just think they're, you know, Nikki Haley would be fine. I'd be good. DeSantis would be fine. I'd be good with it. Pompeo, yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, I don't think, you know, here's another thing I think we need to do. If you're 65, you can't run. Yes. If you're 65, if you're a senior citizen and you're getting government benefits, right, because we don't think you should work in our society anymore, so we're giving you the option to get out of working, you should not be holding that seat, right? And that that's, you know, get rid of term limits, right? I mean, add term limits. Yes. Excuse me. I know what you meant. Get get out of money, right? And let's let's make sure we put a cap on you. You shouldn't be eighty years old running for president. And well, I mean, if you look at how our country was organized, now we did have you know George Washington was in his late sixties, early seventies when he was president, but that's a whole different story. Um, but they were all meant to be citizen legislatures, right? The president would stay there for four years or at the time it was two years. It was a two year term. Um, but the Senate, the house, all those people, they had real jobs. Yeah. They had to go back to the real world. They could right. do this for, you know, four to six years max or two, right. whatever. So, it, but my biggest thing is let's cut their salaries. Let's, let's cut the retirement plans. Let's cut their pension plans. Cause you know, what you, what people don't know is a U.S. Senator one term, Fills out six years. They are guaranteed a pension for life along with their spouse for $7,500. Hmm. A month. A month. For life. He, he, for serving six years. So expand on that. Here's the thing I think that's even worse. Can you... I can't... Are, are you registered? I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. Can you buy stocks or no. anything without disclosing anything? No. I can't. No. I mean, I'm seeing like, and, and the fact that Twitter shut down the follow the Pelosi, you know, feed that shows every single tweet that they did. Yep. I mean, she's the greatest investor, you know, one of the greatest investors of all times. Great. It's crazy. You should not. 
by any means necessary. It's insider trading. It's insider trading. Come on. If you and I did that, we would be in jail. <laughs> it's nuts. <laughs> this is absolutely insane that they're doing this. And and they've done it for so long. And so, and, and on both sides, right? Oh, yeah, both sides. I mean, I think that report came out, and was it uh, Dan, the the Texas congressman? Uh, I, I like Crenshaw. Uh, yeah. Crenshaw. I, lo- I like Crenshaw, right? In certain things, right? Um, but... I think he was number three on the most profitable uh-huh. trades, you know, and I'm going from you just shouldn't. Right. I mean, I can't. Well, I have to disclose everything, every entity I own, every asset I own. Yes. And they don't. And they have to do it like 20 days after they do it. And then that's kind of questionable if they do it then. And then you got so many black uh, holes that they get to invest in, whether it's uh, their, their own super PACs or. I mean, a great example last year is, is the chip bill. So this was providing, I think, almost 300 billion, 400 billion, which is a, a drop in the bucket, but of U.S. investment money to build chip, manuf- you know, like Intel type chip yeah, manufacturers right. here in the U.S. and invest in those um, manufacturing firms to bring it out of Taiwan, to bring it out of other different things. Okay, they had been working on that thing for three years. And it, anyone that had worked on that bill all had money in all the seven major companies that would have benefited from it. They all invested after they started working on that bill. And then they were so invested in getting that bill, but someone broke the news that Paul Pelosi just uh, had option or exercised $5 million in options on that because the vote had just been scheduled. So he already knew that it was passing. Right. How that's not insider trading, <laughs> I have no clue. But, you know, it, some of them don't always necessarily benefit directly themselves, but it's, you know, they do it all through corporations. corporations their family, like, their second right. brother's cousins that comes back to them some way. I, I get it. And they all do it, it but it shouldn't be that way no. because, you know, as you know, we have to disclose a lot. But even if you were like a CEO of a company or you were in the know in a certain company of certain things, they couldn't do the same thing. They yeah. would have to disclose it. They would have to, they, and they actually have to file a report. Yes, I'm selling X amount of shares. Here's why I'm selling them. So, so and so forth. And you got to give so many lead times. Lead time. and, yeah, right. it's crazy. Yeah, and it should be that way, right? Correct. So I just, and it's easy. And they're saying, well, you know, why shouldn't we be able to invest in all this? Just make it where it's either in a blind trust or put it directly into, hey, you can only invest into mutual funds well, or the- ETF, something that is broad specter. But even then, I don't like that because if you like, like the semiconductor deal, you could invest into the broad sector semiconductor ETF, then you'd be, you know, probably just as good, probably not perfect, but you know, you're, you know, that information's in the past, you know, other things, but options trading, derivatives trading, leverage trading, all of that stuff should be off the table. The thing is they already have that rule, they, but they have it for the executive branch. They have it for all the secretaries, the president, the vice president, they all have to divest themselves. A per, I mean, if, Going back to Trump for a second, if you think about it, think about the whole big thing. He was the first ever business owner that became president. And uh, for the most part, I mean, Jefferson and stuff had a business that he, uh, I count because he had Monticello and stuff like that. But true business owner where he had a corporation, he had to remove himself from the board. He had to remove himself from any decisions. His stock went into a blind trust. And now, yes, his sons became CEO and COO and stuff like that. And obviously they're talking, but... Right. You know, he had to really clearly make a clear firewall. Um, governors in most states, uh, Texas is, you know, 
same thing. They have to have a blind trust for any stocks, anything that 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 are owned in Texas, um, companies that are in Texas or do business in Texas, so that they cannot affect that particular price because they don't know what what's going on in there. Sure. Um, so the fact that we already have that in place, but we don't have it in the people that are making the laws. Right. It's really, really funny. So they passed the laws to require it for the people that sign the laws or enforce them, i.e. the executive branch. But the people that are actually passing it and negotiating, they don't want to have that because they're getting money under the table potentially. They're, you know, creating different legislation. And so bringing it back to farming for a second, that's one of the craziest things is I'm, I'm in D.C. probably – two times a month, one time for an, for the financial industry and one time for the farming industry because you have your big farming companies, they spend $20, 30000000 million a year in lobbying to make sure that bills get passed to help them. Sure. And I'm trying to make sure that, hey, you know, can we get a cap on fertilizer? Can we get a cap on certain things so that I can make food affordable for people? Because, I mean, really, vegetables, with the, as much of the inputs that go in, I'm not a big fan for subsidies. I'm not a big fan for price floors, but I am a big fan on price caps per se, because otherwise no one's going to buy my product and it's going to, it's going to go to waste. And, you know, right now what people don't know is we have a 37% daily food waste hmm. in this country. Where's that coming from though? Is that coming from the restaurant industry? Because I always heard that's where it's really coming from. Are you talking about, Hey, this is something in a semi truck that we just don't have a buyer from it. And it's just in a spoil. It's, it's not so much on the um, on the on the raw end or wholesale end. It's more about in the distribution warehouses because you can't get it out fast enough because some of it is perishable, uh, perishable, and you know health codes and health laws and things like that. Some, but a lot of it's grocery stores and also um, and restaurants. But grocery stores more than restaurants, believe it or not. Um, grocery stores can keep the stuff on the shelf for about two to three, four days, and then they toss it. Um, and you know, like. Uh, here in Texas, you know, in February they have every once in a while they have ice storms. Well, in the most recent ice storm in Texas, uh, one of our most famous grocery stores, HEB, had to give away, not give away, had to throw away, I should say. Yeah, that was all over the news in Austin. Yeah. yeah. Had to throw away over, um, I think it was 200 metric tons of food because it was all, it was spoiled, but it could still be cooked or different things like that. But based on health code laws, they couldn't sell it. And then, which I think was more telling that I'm, I'm surprised that the media did not, and this goes to your point about the media and kind of telling their narratives. They were focused on the spoiled food and the fact that cops were arresting people for getting the food. Here's my take on it. People were going after dumpsters because they can't afford the food. Mm. And they saw dumpsters full of food and they were trying to feed their families. So that kind of tells you about the economy out there of of where inflation is gone and things like that. That's fixed to say that's inflation right there. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and we're seeing that and, and nobody in, and, and, you know, I, I don't want to get into the political, I mean, no, the economic, economic space of that, but I don't think, and, and it's weird because I actually, you know, having a CFA and we have, you know, a PhD in economics, we have a chief economist um, that we, we consult with and he's, he's on our team, but we don't think this is over. No. Like we actually see, you know, what we look at 
from a economic standpoint is like this might be one of the first or the only times we see unemployment be sustained and you don't see unemployment actually going correct down, right and this was a big we, we have our investment committee meetings every monday and and they're hours long and they're deep dives into economics and where our holdings of our, our securities for our, our firm and we i'm concerned that one is that it i just don't understand the fed i don't think i'll ever understand the fed but it, it, the way that that structure just that's beyond you know what i'm saying you shouldn't give one guy or this team of guys that all worked for banks the, the ability to actually set policy like that but i digress on there but my, my point is is if we they're looking at a metric that says hey inflation's sustaining because unemployment's not going up mm -hmm. right and so if that's the case and we keep in employment the same but yet you know we could see this thing go into a deflationary environment and that's we're starting to model that true deflation i haven't seen deflation since the 80s yeah i mean this is kind of crazy and then you got another if you're an economist or if you figured this one out you're you're probably the smartest person on the planet now you got china locked up for three years China's fixing to be that's 17 percent of our global population is fixing to be able to buy. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why. I, and I look at this and I think that equities are actually going to be a good thing because they're going to actually keep going because guess what? You're fixing to get this inflow of deflationary environment. But yes, stocks might actually go up. Yes, it, it, it's crazy. It is absolutely nuts on where we're at right now. And I, I don't. We looked back from 1977. We looked back to World yep. War II. I mean, we. I, I can't see any place where this has repeated itself. I mean, we're on really a new. Exactly, which is why I mean, if you look at as of February 2023, if you look at true economic definition, we are in a recession. Of course, okay. yeah, that, there's no question. There's about no it. question about it. However politicians, other economists are trying to reframe it because usually in a recession, you have massive layoffs. Now we are seeing some companies, I, but I don't think they're laying off per se because of the market. I think there's, they're laying off because they overreacted to a market. Well, they overhired when it was COVID, right? But that's what I mean. They overreacted to a market. Yeah. And so they overhired and they... They're just dialing that back down. Correct. Like everybody's blowing up Amazon for $77,000. They hired and they just laid off 18000 Correct. Right? They're still plus 50 some odd thousand over it, a two-year period. Exactly. So I, I think they're just trying to pull it back a little bit, but they're not necessarily trying to contract. And so in a normal recession, you would start to see companies like Amazon, Google, um, IBM or whatever contracting below what they their normal but they're still above where they were even five years ago right as far as or even two employees. years ago even two years ago so it's just they're just trying to just consolidate certain things twitter was i think is an interesting case where they actually went below what they normally would carry but i think that was because of Ownership change ownership and they change, did, leverage they, they, buyout, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, so. he, he's trying to get costs way down because he overpaid for a company. Exactly. So I think that that is a whole different, you know, people are, are saying that was the lead of it. I, I think that's a, an exception compared to the rule. Um, now, what's interesting is Hasbro and Mattel, who have announced layoffs, and toys are usually a pretty good a, leading indicator. Pretty good leading indicator. 
But if you look at their overall employee levels, I think they just, again, I, th- I still, my personal opinion, I still think that it's an over hire for them. And they were just bringing back to normal levels because they're at the same level as they were now five years ago. Um, and I think they just overhired to deal with certain demand with online and all those different things. So I, what's telling is usually when you have a recession, you have massive layoffs and then you start to have slow rehires, but we're not seeing that as much right now. What we are seeing though is the number of small business starts are up almost 1800% from three years ago. And so I think what I didn't know that. So I think what people are doing is they're either opening up consulting or they're opening up small manufacturing, small different things because they came from a corporate environment, realize, and that's honestly how how I'm in the role I'm in now. I was in a corporate environment. I started to get downsized, and I realized looking at my industry, it's going to continue to happen tomorrow where I go, unless I'm a top 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 performer. So why I be a top performer for that company versus be a top performer for my company? So that's mm-hmm. that's what I did. And I think a lot of people, because when you look at the average age of starts, it's two very, very, according to the SBA, it's two very, very interesting demographics. The first one makes a lot of sense. It's people 55 and older. Hmm. And if you think about, and I'm giving you a leading question because I've already given you the answer, but what is the number one discrimination right now in the marketplace? It's ages. It's age. Yep. Okay. So they're out there opening their own businesses. They also have the resources to do so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other demographic that I thought was really interesting was 22 to 25 year olds. And why is that? Come out of college. They don't want to go out of college. corporate America and they're they ready. Go, they're just going to do it on their own. Well, there was a, there was a study by the federal reserve to mention the federal reserve, but there was a study by the federal reserve that actually asked college students what do you need in salary? What do you expect in salary to do it to do an entry level job? You know what the average uh, response was? I bet it's like sixty grand. Close seventy eight point seventy eight five. Yeah, and and even hiring my team is. I got to tell you, my team is out of. I've done this for twelve years now, and the team I have today is the best. Yes, I've, it is. I've had um, inside of they're not not to say the team I had before was any worse. It just we're clicking. Right. right. Everybody's in the one vision. Everybody sees where we're trying to do. And in, in past cases, it was fragmented. I had another partner and great guy. I love him to death. Yep. And it just he had a different vision than I did. So it was always these two different competing forces yeah competing forces inside of there so now everybody's going hey this is the direction i want to go right get on board and let's go and so i just got a really good team around me but that is i will tell you this is the year i struggled most with hiring people in in, correct and this last year it, it i got the cream of the crop i got great guys i really got what i wanted but it was always the the hardest part is like I, I'm sh- always stretching the firm's budget as far as employee <laughs> costs just to get the guy I want. And it's paid out. I mean, we just hired Gustavo in, in January, right? That dude's a diamond in the rough. Yes. I mean, that guy is just phenomenal. And so him just being in my meetings with me and doing all the detail work behind the scenes freed me up just to be able to do this podcast. Correct. And it just, it's buying back so much time there. And, and so it's, we're, we're in that space, but I will tell you that 
youth today, and I don't blame them. Here's the thing is you can go online right now, and there's a thousand podcasts on this Correct. that literally says, go make money online and do these 12 things, and you you can make, you know, $30,000, dollars $50,000, right? So it's it's now you well, still look got— look at the YouTube guy that got in trouble for saying— Young people are lazy. If you really wanted to own a Lamborghini, if you're a 22-year-old male, you should own a Lamborghini. You need to go work at it. The problem is is they missed the 45 minutes prior to that statement of where he talked about how he started 18 different businesses, failed at 16, had to work his butt to get there. Yeah. You know, they just see that he was on YouTube, was successful. They don't understand all that that stuff in there. But, yeah, I agree. The other side of that, too, is – and I look back at this too because I always analyze when I'm talking to my staff or I'm having things is like, I mean, I have some guys that are way smarter than me on my team. And so I'm going, why are you not, you know, on your own, right? And then I look back in certain conversations or meetings or events or things or things and I'm like, mm. that wisdom and experience of failing 16 times is the point to it. It, it it's that's the and I, I would tell you like if I had to start it all over again I, I probably wouldn't end up in the same space right. it, it's a lot harder today to start right. and run a business and it goes to the second data set that's actually starting businesses 55 year olds that's been in corporate America they know what the standard is they know that how they can fix a niche be extremely successful at it and very rich doing it and they have the relationships. And they have a little bit of capital set to the side Correct. to weather to weather that first couple of years. And so it, it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be interesting. But I, I, I wanna I wanna call you on one thing you just said that hey, you're really, really smart, but why aren't you doing it on your own? And one of the things that I risk. Yeah, it's risk, but a it's lot, also a lot of guys don't like that risk. They don't like the risk, but also I, I think I think our definition of smart needs to change. And what I mean by that is you know, and, and I've got a unique perspective because I am autistic and I have been told many times in my life that I'm stupid because of how I present ideas or how I present it myself. I think there are, you know, we all heard book smart, street smart, but I also think that there is people that you can memorize certain things and you can really understand a certain area. But if you can't interpret, if you can't infer it, if you can't also communicate it, I think that also makes you more susceptible, susceptible to being more, I don't want to say a follower, but more, more in a structured environment. You and I, you know, we're smart, but I think I like to say we're more intelligent because and some, we might have to work at it different ways, but we can take, you know, like I heard some of your conversations today. You and I can take what we're listening to and we can infer quickly. Mm-hmm. And put it in there. We don't have to do all the research for it because we've already done the research. Like, and I think, like you said, we have the experience we have in that. But you know, you're having farming farming conversations. I'm going through. Okay, I would have asked this question, this question, this question, and you were asking all the same questions I would ask. Um, and it's just because of the experience. Like you said, you're in West Texas. You you know what's going on and where the market's at, things like that. So, I think those are the different things that set people apart. Is Part of it is our education system where we don't train them to think. We train them to memorize or we train them to actually just know something and become smart, but not necessarily intelligent. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. 
But another reason that you're here too. So you weren't an ex, well, ex, I mean, you were a college basketball player. I was. You're, we're both sitting down here and we're kind of looking at each other in eye to eye, right? But that is a very, I'm, 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 I'm setting up a little bit when I'm saying you're seven foot two. Yes. You're, I mean, I'm five nine on a good day, right? <laughs> That's right. So Jen laughs at me on there, but you're seven two. So you played where? I played at a school called McAllister College. And uh, it's in St. Paul, Minnesota. Okay. And I played water polo and basketball. Uh, there and then I was also. I guess you weren't a point guard. You probably a center. I was more of a center. I was a four <laughs> or five. But there, there were times where I had to bring the ball up the court uh, at different times, uh, just because our point guard was only five foot, uh, five foot nine. Eb, I apologize if you hear that. But uh, <laughs> uh, there were a couple schools where their point guards were six three, six four. Right. And so had a little arm length on them. Yeah. So, you know, we, we had to adjust, but again, that's adaptability. That's adjust, you know, adjusting. So my point to saying that is so you tall, right. But you've also been plagued with a couple of broken bones here. You're on crutches today, still recovering from an a focal a foot or ankle surgery. I forgot what both. both. Right. And so disability is one of the things that you kind of kind of become a, a pretty big specialist into yes and so talk about that for a second because that's i would say out of all my all the things i do in my practice that's one of the probably one or two of the weakest things that i'm not as educated in yeah and and i think the partnership with us has been great because and any good planner will say if he it, will lie to you if he says he knows everything right correct and so you you just got to figure out everything that you can put it in there and then relearn i always and i learned this from a set of doctors that were clients i always said brandon physicians are not that they, they don't know everything they know how to research right right so they, they look do. at a case and they know how to go back and they research and they look it up and i was like wow that's that's literally what we do like i literally get out of a client meeting take my notes down and i go research it so disability is one of those things that we've had what two or three conversations over the Correct. last couple and and a pretty deep one today in our, our private meeting but explain how disability affects everybody especially business owners because yeah. i think that's really where so you you, an, you asked two questions so let me a, answer the first one why did i become a di expert and i became a di expert because i was going to go play professional basketball in europe i had a pretty bad injury in college and that completely changed my career trajectory i'm happy where i'm at don't get me wrong but I lost out on a good amount of money and I started actually using that as a story and talking to my clients about it, uh, about how, what if something were to change your career trajectory, your business trajectory, where, you know, it, when everyone thinks of a disability, you know, it, I'll say it now, it's not something I share a lot, but because of my leg injuries, I'm going to have to start using a wheelchair almost full time. Mm. And so it has a whole lot of different connotations to it. I'm no longer going to be the tallest person in the room, uh, at least not standing, um, mm -hmm. those different things. But when people think of disability, that's exactly what they think of. They think of someone in a wheelchair. And unfortunately in our society, when you have someone in a wheelchair, what do most people think? Oh, they're, they're not as adaptive. You can't do anything, things like that. Now you and I both know in our industry, all it's need, all at above your shoulders. All I need is a phone, you know, a computer, I, whatever, no, no big deal. Right. Um, and a lot of industries are, are that way these days. However, think about it this way. Um, you and I were talking in our private meeting with one of your partners, and uh, he's had the flu for what a last week, week, yeah. week and a half. Have you ever had a flu that bad where you just can't work, you can't talk, you can't think, you can't do those different things? We all have, right? Sure. Okay. 
think of if you're the business owner and you're not able to go into work every day and you're not able to drive the business. Now, hopefully you have a good team around you, but over time, we've all heard the, uh, the saying, if the, if the cat's away, the mice will play. Sure. They don't have the same passion about your business you do. And from a business perspective, I think this is probably the most underinsured, underprotected, underdiscussed is probably the most important part with any business owner. We talk about wealth preservation. We talk about risk protection. We talk about all these other different things with business owners, but we never talk about their income protection. And that's what I actually, I don't use the word disability a lot. I actually use the word, the phrase income protection, because what I want to make sure is that everything they work so hard to build up stays that way. And there's a lot of ways you can do that, uh, both providing income for you, but also covering your overhead if you're not able to keep the business going, which keeps your employees in, in place, all those different things. So those are all different things I like to take a look at. But um, so. I, I think you brought a point that I was like, wow, because I'm, I'm, I, I like the law. I always I tell a couple friends of mine that if I did it over again, I should have been a lawyer. And it, my dyslexia always hurt me on that, you know, yeah. reading and all that um, and internalizing it from that standpoint. I got to do it right to to be able to get it. But my point was, is you, you said there's some pretty prominent uh, and I want to put words in your mouth, but uh, court cases that are going through yes. right now on disability because of buy sell agreements and the Correct. way that they're structured. And I thought that was really interesting because um, that touched on that for a point and, yeah. and and i said yeah i mean we write what we call a modern buy sell now right. it used to be a cross purchase is was the old way but it's gravitating more and more like a modern and then there's two problems with the modern here because now you're saying the insurance companies are thinking they're captive insurance companies potentially right? yep. potentially there, there's that but then you're saying with the modern buy sells too that these buy sell agreements aren't written with attorneys the most optimized it's very very finite in their language correct which is creating it's written by attorney so it's going to be very finite yeah right and they're not writing it from a they're writing it from a legal point of view but they're not writing it from an established case point or case law point of view and what i mean by that is if you pull up your buy sell contract and i mean the ones that actually are you either pull off of Rocket Lawyer or you actually go to an attorney for things like that. Um, not the ones you just draw up on a napkin, which I've seen those two. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen many of those. Um, but what's what's in there is there's standard clauses when it actually talks about death, disability, retirement. And if you really read those clauses, and any lawyer is going to tell you when they're um, when they're prosecuting it or, you know, you know, they're the plaintiff or a judge is going to read it. They're going to read it exactly how it's written. And a lot of how it's written, especially on the disability side is an immediate buyout of the partner. If you're disabled, if you're disabled, the problem with that is most disabilities have a lifespan of about, about 12 to 14 months. Some of them are permanent. Some of them, you know, are a lot shorter. Average time is about 12 to 14 months. If you're a business partner and you have that immediate buyout, you have to put yourself in the shoes of your business partner's spouse. Okay, so that that business. So let's just say you and I are business partners. Since I'm disabled, I'll make I'll make myself the one one disabled. I get disabled. You're gonna. I'm no longer in the business right now, right? I'm not working. You're an expense. I'm an expense to you. Yeah. So you're gonna want to get me out as soon as possible. 
But at the same time, you're going to want to do it at the most advantageous price that you possibly can. My wife, though, is going to want to get as much money out of you as possible because I'm not in the business and that's what's been creating our income. So my wife's going to take a look at that contract. She's going to bring it to a lawyer and it says immediate buyout at 50% or whatever the percentage is, da, 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 da. She's going to present that to you and say, I want to check for X. Right. You're Immediately. Going go, you're going to go, I can't do that. Not only is I lost my partner that was generating the revenue. Right. But now on top of that, I don't have the revenue to actually pay you full market value of whatever the multiple that you or formula you created inside Correct. the buyout. Correct. And then how do you determine what the market value is? You know, is it market value before I was disabled? Is it the market value now because I was providing X amount of revenue? Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. So that's where that clause needs to actually have less specificity <laughs> and a little bit more vagueness into it of saying that after a year of disability or after X amount of time, um, you know, this, this will come out over a five year period of time in cash flow. But meantime, it's for the next 12, it, it will be an equal share. Uh, you, you have to really have that conversation and, uh, I love lawyers, but a lot of lawyers just do not know how to have that conversation. And that's where you and I come in. Well, and I think and I don't want to paint lawyers in the bad deals because we that's why I said I love lawyers. Yeah, I, I want love to- them. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to paint. But but there's there's different types of lawyers. Correct. And a lot of business owners don't understand that, you know, you look at a lawyer, oh, I got a lawyer, right? But that lawyer is just like, hey, when's the last time you went and, you know, had your brain surgery done by your foot doctor does that make sense yeah it's there's two different things in there and so being in this career for as long as i have is there is a ton of specialists inside of there and so making sure you get to the right business attorney to make sure they're know what they're talking about and they have those partners like you or us inside of there is really really important because they'll they'll catch things like that or they have a higher probability of catching it and sometimes you want industry specific so i i I would say that too i I live in austin so austin is the new tech hub Mm -hmm. um if you have, a, there's a lot of business lawyers there, but a lot of those business lawyers don't understand the tech world. And they put in an evaluation based on, you know, the last, um, last formal evaluation. Well, in the tech world, that could have been seven years ago. Sure. Or what could have been six months ago and the multiple is completely different. Correct. But, but what, what I'm saying is when they say formal evaluation, how are you defining that? Because in the tech world, a venture capitalist can come in and really create a different evaluation that is not really truly from a business evaluation standpoint. It's from a multiple or hypothetical. It's from a multiple or hypothetical. And then also now that's, that's what that's gold. That's, that's that's it. That's in the contract. You're paying me 50 times multiple. Correct. And so when you just say formal evaluation, that's a formal evaluation. That's a, that's a venture capitalist has come in and looked at the books and said, okay, I'm going to do this. So he's evaluated the business at X. But the IRS or, you know, a business auditor might only evaluate it at why. Yeah. You know, and and, and I'm fortunate and, you know, all this stuff happens for a reason, I think. And one of the ones that I I got partnered up early on in my career with a really good attorney. Yes. And in in our space and what he taught me so much and we worked um, so many 
cases together. I mean, we're, we're in the probably hundreds or thousands over the last 10 years. Um, and some of the ones that I've seen on these is valuations matter, but they matter less than f- like I hate valuations either. And I hate figures. Put a formula in there. Correct. Put a formula in there in your buy sell X times X times X. And that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. And put that in there. And if you don't agree upon that, then step two is you go to you get evaluation, I get evaluation, and then we get a third party evaluation. And that's where we go. Well, see, that's what I'm saying is it needs to be very specific that way. Yeah. And, and it's and, but there's always I like it where there's a backup. Right. right. If the form because you don't know 10 years, five years, three years, that formula could not even be relevant anymore. Because the company's morphed and it's changed, right? And I will tell you, there's no time I've ever sat down with the business owner goes, says, hey, it's three years. Ready to review that buy-sell agreement? <laughs> it's like, oh, geez, put a bullet in my head, right? It's like nobody wants to do that. And so most, I mean, we had one in Midland that was probably the most prominent case I've ever worked. And one of the business partners was shot and killed. And I was in that meeting. And the two, they were brothers, and the two business partners that were brothers said, we will absolutely document and do these valuations and put it in the minutes and do all these things and put it in our buy sell and keep a copy with it. And I looked up and I was like, you might do it once. Mm-hmm. And they didn't even do it once, once before the other one was, you know, passed. And so it's really, really hard when you you make it harder on yourself when you just make it simple. Put a formula in there. If the formula is no longer relevant, then you can contest it. Come into, I'll get evaluation, you get evaluation, let's get a third-party evaluation. And, and I think everybody's covered. But going back to the disability, how is that on a disability side? This is my question, genuine question here. So let's say you have a 12-month clause in your buy-sell. Okay, how do you gap that because i will tell you i've never in my 12-year career ever see a, seen a funded buy sell correct right i've seen a funded buy sell for death i mean we do those all the time right but i've never seen a funded buy sell for disability and in, in a buy sell correct um i've been doing this for over 20 years and until i really started talking about it i had never seen one now now i've seen 250 and that's only because i've actually gotten funded but how you gap it is, and again, this goes back to that clause, is you have to actually put in there for the first 12 months, we will, cont- you know, you have to figure it out. And you have to sometimes put language in there of, you know, we will continue to share profits at XYZ, XYZ for, for six months, for six months or 12 months, because most now, with disability, you can actually do a disability by cell. And with that disability by cell, usually the waiting period is a year or two years. So what you may do is you may have a sliding scale. You might start at, for six months, 100% equal 50-50 share. Then it's a 60-40 and so on and so forth. And then we start buying out the business utilizing the policy. And you actually put that in the clause. But that that's where what's really funny is when, when people bring that to me and say, okay, well, yeah, it's um, – it's a 50-50 partnership, and they it's it's worth $2 million each, da-da-da-da. I'm like, okay, great. Can I see the buy-sell? Well, they don't really have a buy-sell. Okay, I can't move. I can't move forward. I can't protect that. I can't help fund that because the insurance company is going to want to see that document because the way you structure it is going to be based on that document. So that's when you have then have to get the lawyer involved, and that's where a lot of times we've had problems is the lawyer just wants to make it very general. And we need to make it very specific so that it's it's really out there so that people really truly understand what's going to happen. Because 
you and I, I'm going back to our example, you and I as business owners, you and I aren't going to have the problem. Mm. It's always the spouse. It's, it's going to be our spouse or right. my, da- my daughter or whatever, right. you know, they're, they're going to be the one that's going to come in there and not have the same emotional connection to it. So, you know, you, you talked about the two brothers. That adds a whole different complexity because they're going to want to take care of their brother's family, but at the same time, they got to take care of their business first. And so those are all the different things that you got to kind of take a look at. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. That, there is a way. So are you funding these buy cells where they kick in in like 90 days? And so there is that gap inside of there or are you doing overhead? Are you doing? Yeah. So, and, yeah. So you, you basically use overhead. You use individual DI to cover the income off of it. Okay. Um, and then the buyout actually occurs generally in month 12 or month 18. And then on top of that, you're turning around and you're, they're in life policies. There's accelerated death benefits. Correct. That you can actually use the, as a portion of the buyout as well, even though they didn't pass. So, but you have to have, there's riders and there's things that. There's riders, need. but that should be covered in a buy-sell agreement, potentially. That, that, of, that what? that they need to be funded with both sides. Cause I Correct. think a perfect plan would be like short-term disability, long-term disability, life insurance with an accelerated death benefit, right? Correct. And then you're covered no matter which way you go. It's it's hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. It, okay. It, and it should all be kind of covered in there so that, and then, you know, really I'll, I'll take it a step further is you should have something called a QSPP qualified sick payment plan. It's usually a page or two page document. And where I've seen, and I, I didn't bring this up in our meeting, but um, I'll bring it up here. I actually testified in a case in November on this. And basically what happened was business owner, one of his favorite employees got pregnant. Mm. Okay. Now, we all want to think of our employees as family. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's one of my biggest things. Yeah. You know, right. And, and that's why I'm bringing it up for you. So he paid... Her 100% salary. He didn't reduce her, even though she was out on maternity leave for, for seven months. He paid her 100% salary. Another employee got pregnant. Was not the most stellar employee. He didn't really like her. He fired her. Mm. Well. You're screwed on that one. You know, he, he screwed on that. But if you actually had a QSPP, which actually says, here's how I'm going to do it. And especially if, you, if you're dealing with a DI buy-sell or some type of buy-sell, an employee is still going to win if they see that the owner got still their share, still got their income, even though they're an owner. And, and right. I, I know there's difference, but employees aren't going to see that. But if they see that this person is being taken care of and they're not being taken care of, they're going to sue. That QSPP will actually specify how you would cover that, and it can – it can carve out owners are different. It can carve out executives are different, yeah, employees, yeah. all those different yeah. things. And I think that's a lot of things that business owners miss. And I, believe it or not, a lot of lawyers miss it too. Is that so? What type of lawyer really specializes? Because the main uh, ones, a business I, lawyer. Is it a business lawyer? Because we use a, a business lawyer, but it specializes in probate and estates and business structuring. Yeah, you actually is really, it an HR kind of an attorney that you're looking at? Is you, when you want built? a contracts business contracts lawyer? Uh, yeah. So okay. one that's going to work in doing with contracts. Probably they do a lot of M and A work. They probably do a lot of uh, stock work, things like that. Um, 
but also HR as well. You know, they're looking yeah. at that whole. I could see the HR one paying into that scenario where if you're doing that kind of document that that really lines out the employees, executives, and ownership of how Correct. they're going to be taken care of. And I, I think I haven't even considered that. I mean, not very many companies do no, i would think no one does and that's why i'm bringing it up on this podcast so. yeah that's good well man it's uh i can't believe we covered as much as we did yeah. today it's it was completely uh way worth the wait and i'm glad you actually came up here in, in person man to say that you're it. an interesting guy is probably the most underestimated statement that's out there i did not know all the stuff that's going but i really it's our first podcast yeah. and man I, I love that you were on here and thanks for being on uh, pursuing alpha for the first time and Thank you, Brandon. Appreciate it. We'll see you and hopefully come back. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of conversations we can have on there. Perfect. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Charles Brandon Snyder offers securities through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Pursuing Alpha is a separate entity from LPL Financial. Pursuing Alpha and the logo are registered trademarks. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Any guests and their companies are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Alpha Capital Strategies, Alpha Capital, or the Pursuing Alpha podcast.